Welcome to the new episode of Worldly, Vox's weekly guide to the most important stories in the world, coming to you from the Vox Media Podcast Network. So we're going to start with one of our favorite places, North Korea, because this week has been scary in three different ways. And we're going to talk a little bit about why, but first we're going to hear some voices. The era of strategic patience with the North Korean regime has failed. We're trying to convey to the North Koreans, we are not your enemy. We're not your threat. There is What's a military a option to destroy North Korea's program and North Korea itself. You've got Donald Trump first. You have Rex Tillerson, the now but possibly soon to be former Secretary of State second. And you've got Lindsey Graham, a hawkish Republican senator going third. And what's interesting there is you've got Trump in the big picture saying, we're done talking to North Korea. Rex Tillerson saying, uh-uh, we want to keep talking to North Korea and say to them, hey, don't be scared. We're not going to bomb you. We're not, we're not going to threaten you. And then Lindsey Graham saying, hey, actually, North Korea, you should be scared because we may bomb you and we may threaten you. I think there's a kind of broader strategic incoherence. And I think the background to which that incoherence plays is it is a very legitimately scary situation. And all prongs of it, whether it's trying to contain them militarily, whether it's trying to pressure them diplomatically, none of them seem to be working. So let's start there. Let's unpack each part of that, of when you have the Trump threat, the Tillerson reassurance, the Lindsey Graham threat. There's the military side. There's a diplomatic side. And maybe let's start with the question I think many listeners have if they've read articles about North Korea testing missiles that can fly further and further, no longer just hitting Alaska, but also potentially hitting Washington, New York, most importantly, my beloved hometown of Chicago. So let's start there. How scary is that? Right now, North Korea is not a significant threat to the American homeland. North Korea has tested a missile that hypothetically could go as far as the cities that Yohi was just talking about, but it doesn't have the proven capability to do what's called miniaturization, which is taking a nuclear weapon and making it small enough to go on the tip of a missile and thus sending it that far. It's also not clear how accurate their missiles are, so we don't know if they maybe could go far enough, but it couldn't actually be aimed at the right place. So the point is, North Korea's threat is at this point to the U.S. homeland, theoretical, uh, it's not proven. That doesn't make it not scary in a certain sense, right? The idea that a rogue regime could target the U.S. homeland is quite scary. But I heard recently that a bunch of people who were living in L.A. were constantly asking North Korea experts in the area, is North Korea going to nuke us? And the answer is, cool, cool your jets a little bit right now, and let's think about how we'd solve this problem before it gets to the point where we have to worry about you know, nuclear war with North Korea. And and that gets to the point of the Trump administration's internal incoherence and its inability to actually pursue a course of action for, you know, doing that. Yeah. So just to kind of provide maybe the alternate reading of the threat. So, um, and just to kind of talk through some of the more kind of technical details in terms of what they can and can't do. So there are a couple of big issues in terms of when we say like accuracy, when we say like you know, targeting, things like that. So most experts think that the accuracy that they have is that they could essentially target a large city, uh, like Washington, D.C. or New York, in terms of the size of the target. But they couldn't do, like, pinpoint precise targeting, like targeting a specific military installation. And that's important in terms of nuclear deterrence, in terms of, like, broader strategy. But the fact that they can target, theoretically, a large city would still be fairly devastating. And then when we talk about, you know, whether or not they can miniaturize um, in terms of being able to fit a nuclear weapon, there are a couple issues there. One, 
most experts believe they can put one on an ICBM that would be intercontinental ballistic missile, rather. That's a, a long-range missile that could theoretically make it to the U.S. homeland. Um, that they could put one, it would be kind of what they call like a light payload in order to make it here. So obviously you're flying a missile across a massive ocean and across a continent. You need it to be light enough to be able to make it. So the heavier the payload, the harder it is to make it farther distance. Um, they think they can put one that's in the 400 to 500 kilogram range, which experts call it a light payload. So I was like, okay, well, what does that mean in like real terms? It's actually still kind of terrifying. So when we talk about a light payload, we're talking about a yield between maybe a nuclear yield of maybe 10 to 20 kilotons, like in terms of the explosion. Um, and so I looked that up and I thought, okay, well, that's a light yield apparently. So what were Hiroshima and Nagasaki? And they were right in that exact range. So when we're saying it's a light payload or it's like, we're talking about compared to these massive nuclear explosions that we've tested. So this, you know, the Soviet Union had Sarbamba, which is a massive, massive thermonuclear explosion. They don't have that kind of capability, but they still have some destructive capability, and that's really worrisome. Yeah, I, I want to emphasize, though, that you said most experts believe. This is not a proven capability. Right, this is right, not, absolutely. This is not the Soviet Union. Right. Right, it's not that kind of threat. This Definitely. is about us making sort of best guesses based on the technology they've deployed so far. Right. right. I think the, the the problem is that the best guesses haven't been overly optimistic in terms of the North Korean point of view. They've been overly incorrect in terms of how much North Korea has accomplished. So for years, the, the consensus was North Korea is five years away from having an ICBM. Turns out that's false. And now about a week or so ago, the Defense Intelligence Agency put out a new report saying they're less than one year away. And given that the U.S. government has consistently underestimated the North Koreans' technical skill again and again and again and again. And I think we have to pause and note two things. One, President Obama and President Bush and President Clinton, no one's had a good strategy for North Korea. So we'll talk about Donald Trump a little bit later, but this isn't an example of a successful U.S. strategy and then suddenly Donald Trump came in and broke it all up. There has never been a successful U.S. strategy. But I also think it is worth emphasizing Experts on this, government and outside, have been wrong again and again and again. So, Zach, you know, I agree with you that people in LA shouldn't be buying fallout shelters. Like, this is not happening tomorrow. But I, where I would push back slightly is we don't believe they can do this, and we don't believe they can do it anytime soon. We don't know, as, you know, Jen, as you were saying, whether they can have a warhead that can fly the distance and then also come in from above. Right. So, it's the initial takeoff carrying a warhead, but there's also the reentry carrying a warhead. We don't know if they could do that either. But North Korea has proven itself to be better at this than we thought they were. And my gut is that we should be a little bit less, no, 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 don't worry, they're still very far away, and a little bit more, actually, they're closer. Right. So that's actually um, an argument that Jeffrey Lewis, who is an expert, blogs at Arms Control Wonk, he's um, a nuclear— And a friend of Vox. And a friend, a friend of, of Vox, Vox. Right. Um, yes. But he makes this argument frequently, and he recently wrote a piece, um, he was talking about this, where, you know, he's making the point that we basically, the U.S. did the same thing back in the 1960s with the Chinese nuclear program, and that we consistently kind of underestimated in, in some ways, sort of a culturally, vaguely racist way, like, well, they're so backwards, there's no way they could develop this kind of technology, and China consistently proved that, yeah, they just did, and they would do these massive tests, and we would go oh, turns out they can do that. Oops. And Jeffrey Lewis has been kind of sounding the alarm saying like he sees this kind of trend over and over again where we're trying to convince ourselves 
and, you know, alleviate some of the fear, understandably. But he's like, no, we need to worry about this because this is getting serious. And the problem is that when he and, and other experts talk about, you know, the threat, when you get to, so what do we do about it? That's when the conversation kind of completely falls apart. Right. I, I have a lot of difficulty with talking about the alarmist or as you just put it, sounding the alarm interpretation of North Korea in forums where journalists are mostly doing the conversation. Because we're not talking to U.S. government experts in these cases only. We're not talking to analysts outside the U.S. government at think tanks like Jeff. We're talking to the public. And it is one thing to say, you know, the U.S. government should worry and should really be focusing on developing a policy solution. It's another thing to say, this is super scary, OMG, without all of the necessary caveats, which include the fact that almost every credible expert on North Korea believes that they are not likely, in fact, they're vanishingly unlikely to use nuclear weapons against the United States. And so talking about the threat abstractly as just they have the capability to do this scary thing, to me— freaks out the public in a way that promotes an unproductive conversation about North Korea rather than a sober, reasoned one, which is what these experts want us to have based on realistic estimates of North Korea's capability, which I I agree with the points that you were both making, that they're much closer to a serious nuclear capability than we wish they were. Right. And I think that's a really great point. And I think it's important to also talk about, you know, when we talk about, like, even if they do have this capability, even if it were proven capability rather than theoretical based on kind of modeling and like technical guesses, essentially, there are things that would necessarily mitigate the threat. So we talk about deterrence. So, you know, the Soviet Union has thousands and thousands of ICBMs that can hit us. And for a long time, they were a an enemy of the United States. And there were things that we did. There were things that they did. There were deterrent strategies that we used to mitigate that threat and nuclear war didn't happen. So just because North Korea gets, you know, nuclear capabilities. I think it's a really good point to make. doesn't necessarily mean that the next day they're going to bomb Washington, D.C. Yeah, that's right. But I I think the slight difference is the Soviet Union back then, Russia today, I mean, Russia obviously being the successor which now possesses those nukes, are fundamentally rational states. They act in terms of trying to accomplish rational goals. We talk to them. We do not talk to North Korea, and we do not yet know the degree to which they're rational. So they're often referred to in the press as this kind of like, reclusive country, which is true, led by this unpredictable madman, which I think is not true, but we don't talk to them. We did talk to the Russians. We had ways of, even during the Cold War, we had a red phone. So if something got nutty, we can say like, hold on, we're not going to nuke you. Don't nuke us. We don't have that with North Korea. And frankly, North Korea doesn't have that with South Korea. And I think where it gets a little bit scary is deterrence works when it's two rational countries that have have a a vaguely kind of rational middle ground. I don't think North Korea is going to launch nuclear weapons against Washington, against Seoul, against Tokyo. I don't think that's the threat. I think the threat is you have a very powerful country already that without any of these things could already level Seoul and could already level Tokyo, but right now understands that a big thing keeping it from doing that is that the U.S. can nuke it off the map. And when North Korea gets weapons capable of hitting the United States, I don't think it's they're going to use them. I think it's that the U.S. deterrence against them weakens really considerably. And the confidence South Korea may have and Tokyo may have that we, the U.S., can protect them also begin to dissipate because we, the U.S., might not want to protect them if we feel like we're threatened. So I think you're running two different issues there together, Yochi, and I think that they're worth separating out because I I agree with you on one and I strongly disagree on the other. So I think you're right. The lack of communications between the U.S. and North Korea is a serious concern, and that's the key difference between the Soviet Union and North Korea. In the event of a crisis, it would be much harder 
for us to come to some kind of terms, which I agree is scary. It means the risk of accidental nuclear war miscalculation is probably higher than it was with the Soviet Union. I don't know how high it actually is, but it would be higher. The part where I disagree is the point about rationality, which is distinct, right? When we talk about rationality, we don't mean, do they believe nutty things? We believe, are they capable of drawing connections between the ends that they want to accomplish, that North Korea, the goals of the North Korean state, and the means that would do that, right? And the means, in this case, are developing a nuclear deterrent. North Korea doesn't want to go out of existence. In fact, as far as we can tell, as far as any North Korea expert can tell, the sole goal of the regime, first and foremost, is to survive. They're developing this nuclear capability as a deterrent against a U.S. invasion. They've seen what happened to Libya and what happened to Iraq uh, when the U.S. didn't like the dictators there. And so they don't have any interest in an offensive war. And this is it, that's very rational. It's a very rational reason to pursue nuclear weapons. And if you read say, um, Georgetown expert Victor Cha's book on North Korea, there's a chapter on the military balance where he traces out the evolution of North Korean and South Korean defense strategies and how, how they've developed their conventional military capabilities. And it's clear they're designed to check each other. Even when North Korea develops offensive capabilities like this artillery that you were discussing that could level Seoul in a barrage, they do it to deter South Korean and American attacks. They want to show that if you attack us, we will deliver a devastating counterblow to your civilian population. They're doing this not because they just randomly want to kill a lot of people because they're sociopathic, but because they think they need to do that to deter an invasion. I, I agree. And the point I was trying to make was I think North Korea is a rational state. I think that the public perception occasionally amplified by the sort of Fox News echo chamber that they're just led by a madman, I, we actually agree on that. I think they are fundamentally rational. And I think that's what makes the Tillerson quote so interesting. I mean, North Korea for more than a decade has had one tangible ask from the United States, which is direct talks. They don't want this, what has been the case, which is six-party talks, including China and other countries. They want a U.S. president, a North Korean leader, or a U.S. Secretary of State and a North Korean leader sitting in the same room, shaking hands for the camera. That's what they want. And President Obama kind of went back and forth and ultimately wasn't ready to do it. Neither was President Bush, neither was President Clinton. And it's an interesting open question about whether President Trump is willing to do it. You know, you've got Rex Tillerson sort of saying, I think, the right thing, which is, hey, North Korea, we are not a threat. Because North Korea believes that we are. Trump, who believes himself to be a master dealmaker, has already said it would be an honor to meet Kim Jong-un. That was like his, exact, his exact phrase, uh, which is perhaps not the one he, he best should have used. Ugh. But I think that's actually very the interesting open question of, one, should he? And two, will he? To be fair, in that quote, I mean, that was a ridiculous quote that he said it would be an honor. I would be honored to meet with him. But he did say, following right after that, under the right conditions, if the conditions were right. So there was there was a hedge, there, there was a caveat that if the conditions were right. So it seems that he left himself some room to kind of back out. But I think it's important that we talk about um, those clips earlier because you're seeing, like we said, like these two very different kind of messages coming out. And of course, Lindsey Graham isn't part of the administration, but he was seemed to be, um, and I think, Zach, you, you talked to his office and confirmed that he was relating a conversation he had had with the president. So it wasn't necessarily just his thoughts, although he seemed to be supportive of that idea, but a very belligerent, you know, we will not allow this to stand. This aggression will not stand, if you will. Um, and saying, you know, being very kind of hawkish. And then, you know, but it's the same day you have Tillerson saying, we don't want regime change. We don't want to do this. You know, with the same day, Lindsey Graham is saying we, we could destroy all of North Korea itself. And it's really interesting. And I was kind of thinking through, like, is this another example of 
just the Trump administration chaos in terms of messaging and policy. And it's entirely possible that's true. Um, It's also, I think, equally possible, maybe slightly less, but that this could be a clear kind of negotiating strategy or, or in terms of good cop, bad cop, basically. So, you know, you have this kind of scary, saber-rattling, we will do this and that, and we will come after you. And then you have this, or we could just talk. What do you guys think? And I think it's not necessarily only targeted at North Korea. I think it's also targeted at China. So there's a concern when we talk about, you know, Trump talks about wanting China to kind of help push North Korea to kind of abandon its nuclear program and its missiles. And they've been somewhat reluctant to do so. They've made kind of small, mediocre steps, but nothing really significant that would really signal that they're serious about doing this. And they have their own reasons for that, namely that they want to make sure that the regime in North Korea stays stable. The last thing they want to see is a collapsed regime in North Korea on their border with, you know, millions of starving refugees flowing over the border. So there's the argument that if you if the U.S. starts threatening we might come in and and cause a destabilizing war, that China might go, oh, shit, we should probably get a little more serious because that's definitely more stabilizing than the potential destabilizing thing of pushing back North Korea on coal, on oil, on various exports that that North Korea exports to China basically in order to survive. So there's a possibility that this kind of saber-rattling is part of a broader strategy to kind of push people to take further action. It also could just be chaos. That's also an option. So it is summer in D.C., which means it's about 1,000 degrees some days and then getting truly hot to about 1,500 degrees other days, which means many people here are in shorts, which means many people here are wondering what to wear under their shorts because it is so, so hot. So the question is boxers. The question is boxer briefs. The question is briefs. And that brings us to our new sponsor, MeUndies the softest underwear you can wear, the best you can buy. And they're one of those products you just have to experience for yourself and just wear once. Feeling is believing. So first, every pair of MeUndies is sustainably sourced. It's made from micromodal, a fabric that's three times softer than cotton. And if you're used to buying really kind of boring underwear, I won't name brands that make it, MeUndies will change everything. And that's because MeUndies come in all kinds of colors and patterns, and they come out with new limited edition patterns every month that typically always sell out. And so this month, the patterns were designed by the legendary 80s clothing brand Cross Colors. And these have names that live up to their bold design and the bright colors like Increase to Peace, You Dig, and The OG. So right now, you could save 20% off your first pair and get free shipping if you go to MeUndies.com worldly. There's a reason MeUndies has sold over 5 million pairs to date, and you'll understand it once you put them on. And if you don't love them, if you don't love your first pair of MeUndies, they're free. So get 20% off your first pair, plus free shipping at MeUndies.com slash Worldly. Again, MeUndies.com slash Worldly. And one last time, MeUndies.com slash Worldly. I think it's interesting, and I'm glad you raised China. I mean, China, North Korea's biggest trading partner. China is the country that usually protects North Korea at the UN. President Trump, like President Obama, like President Clinton, has said and thought that China is the solution. You know, get China to push North Korea, and then North Korea backs down. But what I think is really interesting, you know, Zach, you wrote about this some months back. President Trump met with President Xi of China at Mar-a-Lago. Ten minutes later, his whole view of North Korea had been changed by by the Chinese. Who knew it was complicated once until you talk to the Chinese to tell you that it is? But there's an issue with diplomacy and with kind of being a, a world leader generally of patience. 
things don't move quickly. World powers do not move quickly. And Donald Trump doesn't get that. And this is sort of, a, I think, a meta theme to his presidency. You know, he, during the healthcare debate, 17 days in, said, I've left it all in the field. Like, I have nothing more to do. That was, those are the words of Sean Spicer. President Obama spent 13 months fighting for healthcare. And here you've got Donald Trump meets with, and maybe you can walk us through this, but he meets with the Chinese. They make him realize it's complicated. He says, hey, Chinese are great. And then things don't move fast. And they says, wait a minute, they're not great. So let me give you a brief timeline here. So for most of the campaign, and as recently as March of this year, Trump was claiming that China had done nothing on North Korea and they could just solve the problem basically on their own. Then he meets with President Xi on April 6th. And then he gives this quote to the Wall Street Journal, which is hysterical, where he says, uh, after 10 minutes, I realized that China couldn't solve North Korea. And this seems to actually change his opinion temporarily. And we know that because in June, he tweeted, there's been no progress, but uh, you know, at least China tried. I appreciate the effort. Then a month later, in July, he tweets, China didn't try. They didn't do anything. So I, I want to underscore how absurd this is, right? So the president, after one meeting with a world leader, changes his mind on a fundamental issue. This opinion lasts for two months in which he expects, three months, in which he expects a major power, China, to completely change its policy on a vital national security issue from their point of view, North Korea. And then when that doesn't happen in that three-month span, roughly, he gets really mad and starts tweeting angrily about how he was completely wrong about China. Even though he doesn't say he was wrong, he, he maintains it seems like this was his opinion all along, even though it demonstrably wasn't. Like the twists and turns of this are nearly impossible to fathom, and the time frame of it illustrates that the president doesn't understand how diplomacy is conducted. For point of reference, it took Obama, I don't know, roughly six years to negotiate a nuclear deal with Iran, which is a priority from day one of his administration. Six years. And Trump, after three months, is convinced that diplomacy can't work with China. Right. And absolutely. And I think it's it's important to talk about what China could do and and what the timeline would be on that. So in terms of what China can do to pressure North Korea and what we've basically asked for them to do, one of the things is to kind of get a hold on the Chinese businesses who allow sensitive technology to kind of slip over the border and maybe go to North Korea. And we're talking technologies, sensitive software and hardware that are used to stabilize and fly their missiles. And, you know, we don't really know whether China just hasn't tried to crack down on these businesses or if Chinese businesses are just so broad and vast that China, the Chinese central government, can't really just get a handle on it. Given the level of control that China has over its businesses, I tend to not think that that's the correct answer and maybe they haven't tried Such as hard as they— Such a cynic, Jen. I know. I know. I'm, I'm sure they have all the best intentions. Um, but— Again, that's not something that they could do. I mean, if they wanted to crack down on businesses, there are still ways that the black market and that, you know, kind of workarounds that businesses in China can use to still get that technology. So if China really wanted to crack down, it would take a little bit of time, even if they were actively trying. And they did take steps to to reduce imports of coal from North Korea, but their overall trade went up. So it's kind of unclear. Like, these are things that, you look at what happened in the first quarter of 2017 and you say, yeah, you know, their trade went up, but their coal imports significantly dropped. 
But that's like, you know, a couple data points in the first quarter. This is not something that you can extrapolate to be, this is clearly what China is doing or not doing, like you said. China, Chinese diplomats, I should say, and also Chinese state-owned media are masters of the kind of understated shiv, the little like the little knife. <laughs> and there were two times recently where I was kind of reminded of that. One, I was in an event at the Chinese embassy a couple of months ago where they were asked about North Korea, like, what will you do? And very politely, they kind of said basically nothing, like in just varying kind of long ways of saying that. And there was one reporter there who, I wish I remembered his name because I'd love to give him a shout out. So China was saying, well, we abide by all relevant UN resolutions. We do not give them weaponry. And he started going through point by point, weapon by weapon. If you look at like frames of North Korea's scary Stalinist military parades, many of the vehicles that they're displaying are made in China. Very clearly, like it's Chinese, it's Mandarin language writing, but they're very clearly Chinese. Oh, I was made. hoping there was a big like made in China stamp on the side that you could notice, but uh, that seems unlikely. Maybe a, paint, a painting of Chairman Mao on the side. <laughs> be kind of make, China, make China great again. But they were they were very literally Chinese made. And it's sort of, to Jen's point, it kind of belies the idea that they're just going to not, not do much because they can't. But the other thing was this week. You had the Chinese state-owned media with this great like little two-word shiv against uh, against President Trump, where they're talking about his tweets, and they refer to them as extreme venting and saying, tone down the extreme venting. In in the Vox office and all of our Slack channels, we use the phrase hot take. But this was China basically saying to Trump, enough with the hot takes. And it's it's interesting. I mean, this is like a one world power led by one world leader saying to another world power led by another world leader, stay off of Twitter. Stay the hell off of Twitter which many here I think would agree with. But it's an interesting reminder, I think, of how China itself was trying to figure out when Trump tweets something positive, should they feel good? When he tweets something negative, should they feel bad? Or in the end, you know, Zach, to your point, is it all so mishmashed and incoherent that it doesn't matter because he'll change his mind two weeks from now in any event? Yeah, I mean, say what you will about the Clinton, Bush, and Obama administrations, but each of them had a defined policy for North Korea. Clinton tried some negotiations over the nuclear program. Bush shut off those negotiations, which was not the smartest move, but at least it wasn't. At least it was an ethos. Uh, Bush and, tried really hard, and they got yeah, really close. Yeah, I mean later he, in the administration. Yeah, yeah, I mean he even tried to rally Gaddafi, Libya's Muammar Gaddafi, to talk to the North Koreans and convince them that the U.S. was a legitimate partner who would keep their end of the bargain if you give up nuclear weapons, which is. Perhaps not the best choice of person. Not now. Uh, no. Going going forward, but, but at worth, the time, it, it's worth not whitewashing the Bush record, right? right? They did the Clinton talks looked like they might eventually bear fruit, and at the beginning of the administration, shortly after nine eleven and the access of evil speech and stuff like that, they suspended negotiations. Right? It really. I don't want to. I don't want to make it sound like they only tried diplomacy. They also shut off promising avenues. For right. Diplomacy. But but you know. I, I, but I agree with Jen. I mean, it, it was under the Clinton deal that the U.S. was supposed to provide North Korea with peaceful reactors, heavy water reactors, and light water reactors, and the U.S. didn't. And that was a failure of the United States yeah. under Clinton. So I'm, I'm with Jen. I mean, I, I there, there's. I don't want to make it seem as if it's heroic Clinton and then dastardly Bush. Clinton violated his own deal. True. Bush did negotiate and came close to a deal. So I think your broader point, I, I agree with, that there were at least strategies underlying it. But I, I do think it's important to know that this wasn't hero Democrat, thug, failed Republican, hero Democrat again, and now Donald Trump, because it, it was a lot more complicated. Well, yeah, I don't I don't think anyone would describe Obama's policy, which was called strategic patience, but literally was just waiting and not doing anything as heroic, right? It like It was, maybe it was the best of a lot of bad options, who knows, but- uh, by then, North Korea already had nuclear weapons and was unlikely to give them up. 
the point is, at least these were thought out defensible policy options in each of these cases. You can make arguments back and forth. Experts can disagree in their historical assessments, et cetera, et cetera. There's nothing like that in the Trump administration. There's nothing even close to that in the Trump administration, right? Rex Tillerson says one thing and the president seems to undercut it. There's no overarching strategy. When Lindsey Graham gets up and talks about how Trump wants to go to war, which is basically what he said, then uh, what's the point? Like, honestly, what what does that help? What leverage does that give you? I don't think China is going to take it seriously just coming from a senator. So we can get Zach spun up with hot takes, which is a lot of fun. We do this in, in Slack and in his writing. There is a particular part of the Lindsey Graham quote that really got the hot takes flowing from Zach Beecham. This was it. If there's going to be a war to stop him, it will be over there. If thousands die, they're going to die over there. They're not going to die here. And he's told me that to my face. Spin it away, Zach. Hot take it. I can't understand how a morally conscious person would say that. Think about that statement for a second, right? We've been talking about how there's no proven threat from North Korea to the U.S. homeland right now. And what Graham is saying is that we should let thousands of people die in North Korea. In fact, we should initiate a war that he said by his own admission would kill thousands and by most estimates would kill hundreds of thousands, if not millions, right? North Korea, again, has nuclear weapons that can hit Seoul and Tokyo. Millions of people. And Graham is saying, we should do that. We should start a war with unpredictable consequences just because one day, maybe, there might be a nuclear crisis with North Korea. That is indifference to non-American life on a massive, massive scale. It is hard for me to underscore how morally pathetic and cretinous that statement is. And there we have it. That's the kind of hot takeaway that we miss sometimes. It doesn't always come through in writing, but you could hear it hear it in Zach's voice. But one, one thing to clarify there was that, because he sort of jumped around in his, his answer. We, we listened to the first part of it earlier in the show. Was that him sort of repeating back what Donald Trump had told him? Or was that his own, I'm fine with thousands of people dying? So he said that repeatedly in interviews as his own opinion. And this time he was saying that the president agrees with him about it, as Got far it. as I can tell. So the first part, when, what we heard before was him saying, the president has told me he's willing to use force. But that was Lindsey Graham saying, I personally I'm fine with it. I believe this, and the president agrees with me, basically, as far as I can tell, based on his numerous public opinions. And he likes to say this stuff on talk shows. Like, it's fun to sit on the Today Show and talk about thousands of South Koreans dying. Like, that's just a nice morning for him. I would like to point out that when we when we hear that kind of rhetoric, it's actually really striking because it sounds kind of a lot like what North Korea's rhetoric is on the flip side. And that's the problem, right? Then you have saber rattling on both sides, and this continues to escalate. So after the latest missile test on Friday, on the 28th, um, the state media said, quote, if the Yankees, and that doesn't refer to the baseball team, I believe that's the correct sports ball, baseball, yes. Oh, um, but that's that's what they call us. They, they call the U.S. the Yankees or alternately the imperialists. Um, but the quote was, quote, if the Yankees brandish the nuclear stick on this land again, despite our repeated warnings, we will clearly teach them manners. So it's it's really similar in terms of if you guys keep doing this, we will have to respond to stop you from doing this, which when we talk about rationality, that's kind of makes sense, right? So there, I think it's important to talk about that there are actions that the United States takes that the North 
sees as provocative, sees as aggressive. So we do these annual military um, exercises known as Foal Eagle. Um, Again, I really want someone to create like a widget or an app or some sort of technology thing that I do, wizardry, um, to, you know, create these military names that they name these operations because they're just magical. But Foal Eagle. So we do this annual exercise and it's basically like U.S. and, and South Korean forces doing these joint operations basically right next to North Korea, ships and planes and all sorts of things. And every year, like clockwork, the North starts getting really freaked out because the North sees this not as we're practicing and making sure that we're ready in case you attack us. The way they perceive it is you guys are practicing for an invasion. And that's kind of scary to them. So they're like, well, great. We're going to start saber rattling back. You guys better stay where you are don't mess with us or we're going to have to do something. So you get this escalation where each side sees the other side as being super aggressive and provocative and just kind of spirals. And I think the important thing to do is to kind of maybe see if we can all take a step back, take a deep breath and go, what can we do to calm tensions? We probably can't get them to give up their weapons at this point. I want to underscore something that Jed said earlier in those series of very smart comments about the similarities between what Lindsey Graham said and what the North Koreans say. You don't want to sound like a rogue state. Why is it good for the world's most powerful country to make the kind of moral argument that you hear from countries that imprison thousands of their own people, that lives of foreigners don't matter very much? And this is true on on just a sheer, this is an unconscionable thing for a U.S. senator to say and for a U.S. senator to attribute to the president is even worse, but also on a strategic level. Imagine you're living in South Korea. Imagine you're the South Korean president. And you hear a U.S. senator attributing comments to the president saying the lives of your citizens don't matter. Or imagine that you're the leader of Japan and you hear these comments. You're a U.S. ally, nominally protected by the United States. And the U.S. is trying to rally you in a coalition to deal with the North Korean problem. Why on earth would you cooperate? Why would you trust this great power that's supposed to be in charge of your security if what they're saying is your people don't matter? I saw a North Korea expert say uh, on Twitter after these comments, if anyone was looking to undermine the U.S. alliances in East Asia, then you couldn't do better than what Lindsey Graham is doing on TV. And it's hard to see how they're not right. I agree with that. Although the counterargument made by some people who are, who are relatively smart is— the U.S., while saying that, is also repeatedly saying again and again and again, we do have your back. They've deployed a missile system called THAAD to South Korea designed to shoot down incoming North Korean missiles. This past week, they had B-1 bombers fly over South Korea, like in a very muscular kind of, hey, we are willing to defend you. We also um, fired some missiles into the ocean, which was meant to sort of look kind of aggressive, but uh, just kind of look like we're really good at firing missiles into water. Splash. Yeah. Look, we can waste missiles too. But our colleague colleague Alex Ward did a very smart piece about what's currently happening in North Korea that was sort of, it is very scary, but we're not going to war. But there's a quote in there that I do want to read because it was interesting. And it it directly, Zach, uh, comes up to a point you were raising about what would South Korea or Japan feel? Like, should they be scared because their lives seem to be disposable? Or should they feel vaguely reassured because the U.S. is sending B-1 bombers? So a retired three-star general named Chip Gregson, who had run Asia policy uh, in the Pentagon in the early Obama years, said this to Alex. Our response could be viewed as necessary to assure our allies that we do still have their backs. And I guess that's kind of the question, right? Like, 
That may be how we see it. We see it as saying to them, we've got your backs, but do they see it that way? Do they see it as we have their backs or do they see it as thanks for flying over the B-1 bombers, but maybe ixnay on the bomber country A? I think there's also an important point when you talk about who has whose back. When we talk about, you know, who is viewing the other side as being the aggressive provocateur in this situation. So China is actually has like a treaty with North Korea. It's the 1961 Sino-North Korea Treaty of Friendship, Cooperation, and Mutual Assistance. That's a great name. (laughs) It's a great name. It's really, it's really lovely. Um, So it basically says that China is obligated to intervene on behalf of North Korea if North Korea faces unprovoked aggression. And that's the key phrase. There's unprovoked aggression. So China has repeatedly tried to kind of get out of this. They've tried to ask the North Koreans, hey, can we just maybe like take that part out of the of the treaty? But it's still there. And, you know, they could obviously say, well, we, we're not going to come to your defense because you guys have been pretty provocative. But I think it's important to keep that in mind that, you know, and I don't think that China's ready to go to war to defend North Korea. But it's important to realize that there are there are kind of bigger picture issues in terms of who perceives who. So China regularly also calls out the United States and says and and South Korea and says you guys need to maybe chill out on the big massive military exercises because you're scaring North Korea and you're making them lash out like this. And you know there are good arguments to why we do this, right? Like to plan for war. Um, but that's also a valid perspective that this. You know, if you're North Korea, this kind of feels a little provocative, and you might want to maybe say something to keep people out. So I think it's important to realize that there are different perspectives here, and that the way people perceive this is affecting how we're responding, and it leads to escalation if we're not careful. I think that's a, a perfect place to pause and to shift to segment number two. I'm to, perfect. To Jen says modestly, uh, to Elsewhere. And this week on Elsewhere, we're going to talk about a story that destroyed Zach's weekend. And Zach could begin to vent in a second as to why destroy the weekend. But you're really setting me up for anger. I know. I love it. Which which is Russia. And more specifically, a joke that I was trying to keep myself from saying, but I I can't, which was Vladimir Putin saying, Dos Vidania to 755 American diplomats. There was a Disputin. That one was, that's awesome. You're welcome. Jen wins the, clearly wins the podcast joke. Our producer, Peter Leonard, just gave us a two thumbs up Rocky style lovely celebration for that joke. Although, to be fair, I have to give a hat tip to This American Life. Uh, there was a great episode of This American Life where I heard them say disputant, and I almost died laughing. So, hat tip to This American Life for my amazing disputant joke. But Moving on. <laughs> moving on from Jen's theft of a great joke from uh, from This American Life. Uh, it is interesting. And, you know, Zach, maybe you could start us here because it's something you wrote about over the weekend, but Putin went on Russian television, said of the U.S., they've got 1,100 people. It's too many. We're going to kick out 755 of them. Why? Okay. So first off, the initial reporting about this said he was going to kick out 755 U.S. diplomats, which is wrong. There are not 755 (laughs) U.S. diplomats in Russia, so he can't kick out that many people. Do we even have that many diplomats at all (laughs) at this point? (laughs) I mean, not in this State Department. Yeah. What's actually going on is Putin is ordering, and the Russian government is ordering, the U.S diplomatic mission to Russia to cut its staff to 455, which is the total number of staff that Russia has in the United States in its diplomatic mission. Diplomatic missions don't just include diplomats. They also include a lot of people who are employed locally, so Russians, basically, who do necessary jobs to maintain the embassies and so on and so forth. So what Putin is doing is is 
essentially lashing out as a result of the sanctions bill that just passed Congress and that the president just signed with an aggressive, angry signing statement saying he didn't really like it, but he's going to sign it anyway. Uh, and punishing the U.S. by forcing it to scale down its diplomatic presence in the country. This is largely symbolic. The biggest consequence of it in practical terms is that a lot of Russians are going to lose their jobs, right? Because it's not even, it's not actually expelling diplomats. It's just saying the U.S. has to downsize its presence. But let's rewind that just a little bit because you put something in there at the end that is interesting and really complicated. But the sanctions bill, yeah. it did pass overwhelmingly, but the sanctions bill would do what? And it passed— why was it so interesting in terms of its relationship with Donald Trump? Yeah, the sanctions bill, it makes it hard for Trump to lift sanctions under his own authority, those sanctions being the ones that were imposed for election meddling and for, I believe it also covers uh, Crimea-related and Ukraine-related yeah, sanctions. Yeah, it does. Yep. Uh, and so typically presidents have the authority to waive sanctions that were passed by Congress for national security reasons if they deem it to be in the U the interest of the United States. Now Congress is trying to require congressional approval for Trump to do that with respect to Russia. And they're doing that essentially because they don't trust the president on Russia. And what's amazing about this is it passed by overwhelming margins in both the House and the Senate. It was something like 98 to 2 in the Senate. It's remarkable that there was such consensus that a Republican president can't be trusted on a major foreign policy issue. I also think it's interesting to note that Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister made a comment last night making fun of Trump and saying, you're weak. This shows how weak you are. You just gave away all your executive power, which is a pretty staggering. People were like, oh, wow, that's, you know, that's pretty rough. And I, it, to me, I just saw that as like, if you want to come up with a way to, to poke Donald Trump and make him respond, call him weak in public and be Russian. Like, you know, he admires Vladimir Putin for being this big, strong, tough man. And if a representative of his government says, ah, you're a puny little weakling, I can't imagine Trump's going to love that. But I did want to kind of go back to a point you made in terms of Putin kind of punishing the U.S. in response. And that's definitely what it is. But in addition to to cutting, order them to cut the diplomatic staff, they also, Moscow also said it would seize two U.S. diplomatic properties. Um, there's a warehouse in southern Moscow and a complex on the outskirts of Moscow that embassy staff use for weekend recreation. I can't imagine what their weekend recreation is like. Vodka. It's mostly vodka. <laughs> vodka. Bowling, maybe? I'm not really, I'm not really Sounds clear. like my weekend recreation, come to think about it. <laughs> Sounds like a nice weekend. Only not vodka, bourbon and beer, okay. really. Um, but I think it's really important to, to note that this is kind of a similar mirror reaction to what the Obama administration did right towards the end of, of the presidency, where they seized these two DACAs, these two, this Russian compound, diplomatic compound here in the U.S., in, in the Washington area. And Putin really didn't like that and would like those back. Trump hasn't given them back yet. There seems to be kind of conversations maybe happening about whether that would happen or not. But it's kind of a tit-for-tat thing. But I think it's really important to notice that Putin— didn't order them out tomorrow. He didn't kick out the staff. He didn't say, you guys have to cut your staff next week. He gave them five weeks. He said by September. When you compare that to the Obama administration, the Obama administration gave the Russians three days to get out of their compound. So there's an argument, and I'm not sure if this is right or wrong, but there's an argument to be made that Putin is actually kind of trying to give a little and say, look, you know, this is, I have to respond obviously to this, but it's not the harshest thing. It's kind of like a there's room to, to move around. We have a little lead time here that we can kind of talk through this. So it's not as harsh as it actually could have been, and it's not as harsh as Obama was to Putin. Yes, I, I agree. Although 
One big distinction, of course, was that the Obama response was to Russia meddling in the United States election. Right. I'm not saying and, he and was this, wrong. And, this is, no, and well, <laughs> I just make the point that this was a response to sanctions. So what he's responding to, what Obama was acting on was, was a lot more uh, damaging to the U.S. There was one part of this that was kind of funny and one part of it that I think is really broad and interesting. The funny part was there's a story coming out of Moscow about the U.S. having been told they had a certain number of days to take stuff out of one of these compounds that Jen mentioned. But then they went and the locks have been changed. Right. And so I just like the mental image of like They're U.S. diplomats stuck. kind of who had actually put on jeans and T-shirts like out there trying to get in and they jiggling the lock and they, and they can't go in. Yeah, there's like a weird standoff where they were like, can we can we just get in to, to get our bowling shoes? Like and, the, that. and the answer was no. But then there's kind of the big question over this, which I found really fascinating. Putin clearly thought Donald Trump would give him some tangible things, right? He clearly thought Donald Trump will lift sanctions. And frankly, you know, Zach, to your point, Republicans thought the same thing and they've tried to block it. Putin clearly thought Donald Trump will in some way recognize his annexation of parts of Ukraine by lifting those sanctions, which would basically be saying, we don't mind this anymore. He thought the U.S. would give back the compounds, you know, Jen, that you mentioned. So Putin had this list of very tangible things he thought he would get from Donald Trump, and he meddled in the election to get Donald Trump elected to get those things. And that, to me, is fascinating, because he got Donald Trump elected. He's caused mass chaos in terms of the U.S., mass distrust of our electoral system, whether you could trust the results of it. But then those tangible things, the actual specific things he thought he would get, he hasn't gotten any of them. He does seem to have gotten some movement in Syria. So he did get— That's true. Syria would be the exception. Yeah, I think that's the one exception. That's the, yeah, that's a fair point. Yeah, I think— although, although Trump did bomb Assad, his ally, and we've come closer to actual conflict with the Russian right. coalition than we ever did under Obama. Right, absolutely. But I think that was in response to a specific chemical weapons use. I think it's fairly clear that the Trump administration is not pursuing regime change with respect to, to Assad and not insisting that Assad must go and— Trump just ended the, uh, which was supposed to be covert until he talked about it on Twitter because OPSEC, because operational security is not a thing. Actually, not not to defend Donald Trump, but the, the program that he ended, which was a CIA training program, its existence had leaked. Right. Everyone knew many, about it. Many, 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 many years ago. It also was a right. not great program yeah. in right. terms of its efficacy. Right. I, I think people in the CIA would probably be opposed to the president just kind of arbitrarily mentioning its kind of policy to not, you know, confirm or deny. But that, that's neither here nor there. Everyone knew about it, and it was a troubled program, to put it, this, to put it mildly. But the CIA program to arm and train Syrian rebels. So in in some respects, you know, Russia is probably pretty happy about that. There were a lot of people who were like, that's clearly Trump, you know, capitulating to Russia. I don't necessarily think that's the case. Um, I do find it interesting in the recent uh, transcript that leaked out that Politico published that was the interview Trump gave with the Wall Street Journal. Trump apparently said that he had nothing to do with that decision. He said, that wasn't me. I didn't do anything about, oh yeah, well, they came to me and they, and they mentioned it and that, that, that we should probably end this program. So apparently with Donald Trump, the buck stops but, literally but anywhere else. But, but let's bring it back to Russia specifically. To the question of, was Russia, was it fair for them to respond? Was this something to be expected? You know, Jen, to your point from before, is this actually sort of them calmly saying, we do still see a chance at something, at something to talk about? Because that's the open question, right? Like the, Donald Trump came into office saying, Russia can be our friend. I can strike a deal with Putin. I love this man. This man's the kind of man I wish I was. And that's been the question ever since. Like, can he do it? And so far, we don't have much evidence that he can. But to your point, maybe there's a sliver that we just haven't seen just yet. Maybe the door is not yet closed. Yeah, I think the... Russians, or at least in their public statements recently, top Russian administration officials, including Putin himself, have said, I think the U.S. is a lost cause. I think relations with the U.S. 
can't be improved. And I think they're not wrong about that. I think that Trump does not have the political support necessary to execute a major pivot towards friendliness with Russia. I don't think that the continued leak of information that he may have collaborated with Russia during the campaign is going to give him any more room. And I also think that making a major pivot in policy, one that runs against really decades of American foreign policy and your own party's stated ideology, that takes a lot of skill. It's really hard to get a lot of different constituencies on board to develop the political cover and the strategic framework for building a new relationship with Russia. You need a, a competent, well-staffed State Department that agrees with you, that has plans, that has the ability to reach out to allied diplomats and make all of this go over well. And the Trump administration is hollowing out the State Department. Rex Tillerson is, is a really, truly incompetent Secretary of State, and the president himself doesn't have a, a strong vision of how you would go about repairing U.S.-Russian relations. It just – it requires skill and planning, and those are the two things the Trump administration clearly has demonstrated a lack of. Right. Also messaging and selling that to the right people and the right constituencies, including the American people, but also the Republicans in Congress, et cetera. And I think if we've seen anything in this administration, we've seen that they seem to lack the ability to stay on one single message and to have a – concerted effort to push a single plan message. I mean, even on healthcare, they they failed to kind of really do a, a strategic messaging strategy. So again, I agree. I think if they wanted to do a serious policy push, they lack just the infrastructure to even try to start that. Jenny made a really smart point uh, before uh, you, you and Zach kind of cross-talk about the hollowed out State Department. And it's interesting, we don't have a, an ambassador right now in Russia, which is problematic. We have, we have a nominated ambassador, finally, John Huntsman, who'd been ambassador to China under Obama. But you would think that'd be an important job to fill. We also don't have an ambassador to South Korea. So in two of the places where we are in most dangerous footing, Jen made that really smart point before about kind of the hollowed out State Department. We also have like hollowed out embassies. You know, this would be a nice time to have an ambassador in Russia. This would be a nice time to have an ambassador to South Korea. And, you know, Zach, you'd mentioned before a specific person named Victor Cha, who's a professor at Georgetown, a very, very, very respected man. It had leaked at least a month ago. I think about more, a month ago, yeah. That he was going to be the nominee to be the ambassador of South Korea. Much of the foreign policy world was like, hey, this is great. And then nothing. nothing. Crickets. Crickets. It's it just, I don't know where that went. <laughs> I have no idea where this big, exciting news went off to, where it came from, or why there's been no movement on it. But it's clear that wherever the rumors were, whatever they came from, they just don't seem to have been executed on by the administration. And maybe that's because they were never going to nominate Professor Cha in the first place. Maybe it's because they just can't get their act together to figure out how to do the nomination because they're just that caught up in infighting and an inability to navigate bureaucracies. I don't know. Uh, the dysfunction in this administration is so deep and so varied that it's difficult to predict which kind of dysfunction produced this kind of bad output. And I guess a sort of wrap-up question, and I'm curious to, to everyone's thoughts. There's the messaging question, right? Like, do they have a policy, you know, Jen, to your point from before, but they just can't convey it? I don't think these are either or. I think probably right. the answer yeah. is like, yes, all of the above. <laughs> yes, and. Yes, and, exactly. So there's the messaging question, and then there's also the staffing question, like why the hell don't they have an ambassador in Russia? Then there's the policy question of, do they have a policy? Is it just chaos? And I think this is a true question from North Korea from the first part of what we talked about, and I think it's a bigger question now. Do they have something to do with Russia that's coherent? They just don't know how to talk about it? Do they have something that they don't know how to talk about? 
and no policy? Is it some mix of the two? And I'm curious, you know, Jen, maybe you want to start because you talked about messaging. What, what do you think? I mean, it seems to me that you have probably a bunch of different people who have a bunch of different ideas. So, you know, I bet if you were to sit down and ask Jim Mattis and McMaster, you know, do you guys have a strategy or what are your thoughts on a strategy towards North Korea or towards Russia? They would give you pretty coherent answers and they would probably be, I would assume, fairly similar in terms of what they their strategies, ideas would be. Um, the problem is that they may or may not have any sway whatsoever with Trump and what his actual strategy wants to be. Um, and then you have Tillerson, who is not an expert in foreign policy, although he does have a ton of experience in oil policy from and, his CEO as ExxonMobil. he has a lot of charisma. Yeah, he is so charismatic, as Yochi loves to point out. Yeah, every morning when yeah. we talk about Tillerson at a meeting, Yochi comes in and says, oh, it's Mr. Charisma again. Yeah. Um, so It's funny because he's not charismatic. <laughs> thanks, that, thanks, Zach. That, thanks for <laughs> look, man. It's your joke. I felt a need to explain. Vox.com, We explain it. the news <laughs> and jokes. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that there's no lack of you know smart people. I mean, you have Fiona Hill, who you know is a top expert on Russia, um, whom I used to work with at the Brookings Institution, um, not Institute. Um, who is now, you know, the top Russia kind of advisor in the White House and the National Security Council. So you have really smart people who have ideas about policy. Whether or not that policy is actually the policy of the administration is an entirely different question. I think it's just nice to know that there's someone from the Brookings Academy in the U.S. government. <laughs> and that that's the Jen hot take spark. That's what gets Jen <laughs> angrier and angrier and angrier. <sighs> which is a lot of fun. Long-suffering. We want to thank everyone who is listening. If you like what you heard, we hope you do. Please go to Apple Podcasts, subscribe, rate, review. Go to Stitcher or SoundCloud, any place else that you can listen to podcasts, listen to them there. We've begun to get emails, which are a lot of fun for people who listen to the show. Either they like stuff, they don't like stuff. But if you listen and you want to reach us, you can email us. You can find us on Twitter, uh, hashtag Worldly. You can also email us at worldly at vox.com. want to thank Peter Leonard, a brilliant producer. I want to thank Rex Tillerson, Lindsey Graham, and Donald Trump for some great sound. And we'll talk to you all next week. Bye. Bye.